Welcome back to another episode of the From the Top podcast, a podcast all about first things. If you're new to the show, my name is Stanton Watson, and my goal as the host is to experience as many first things as I can and use those experiences to rate whether I would keep doing that thing. So it might be first episode of a show, first movie in a series, first book in a series, or first song on an album. It can be really any first thing. Of course, I welcome any suggestions that uh, people want to pass along to me. I appreciate those people who've already emailed in at podfromthetop at gmail.com. Already some great suggestions that I'm looking forward to getting into for future shows as well. So I definitely appreciate that. And if you would go ahead and help out the show by clicking the follow button on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts, you can always leave a five-star review to help out the show as well. Even if you're just telling a friend or telling somebody, hey, you might you might like to listen to this or passing the word along about the show, I really appreciate that. But even the kind words that people have said about this project, it, it started as a project to do alongside my students with their creative projects in my class. But it's always been something that I've always wanted to do. So I'm excited to get started on this and I'm glad you're a part of it. So let's go ahead and get into the episode. All right. The next first thing up for review is The Watcher from Netflix. This was a suggestion from a co-worker of mine at school as well as some students who left this suggestion, so I thought I'd give it a watch. Hadn't heard too much about The Watcher, honestly, outside of those suggestions, but checking out the premise and the trailer on Netflix, I thought it sounded pretty cool. Anything that has that added element to me, like Dahmer, of being at least based on a true story, it grabs my interest a little bit. I want to know, like, these things actually happen and are noteworthy enough to make shows out of them, especially if it's billed as being suspenseful. Maybe a little, I can't tell right now if there's a little bit of a paranormal element to it or not, but those are the kinds of things that I want to know about. If it actually happened in real life uh, there's just that added element to me you keep that in the back of your mind of these things actually happen and I think that is always interesting I'm just going to track my thoughts as I watched the show I'm still trying to flesh out what my process is for these reviews really but I think as I watch the shows or or listen to anything new, try anything new for the first time, I'm I'm taking notes of my thoughts as it happens. And I think that's the the best way to do this, to share my initial reactions as I watch, because that's how we, that's the most authentic way that I can represent my thoughts the first time I experience something. And I, I want to... I want to use this as an opportunity to share what my first experience actually was the first time I watched something or experienced something. So I'm going to try to walk through my first watch of The Watcher and just kind of relate my thoughts, the notes that I took, the ideas that I kind of jotted down as I went through the show. And I think that's how we think back and reflect on, you know, capture those ideas in real time. So you start off and you get the first thing they tell you is that this is based on a true story. And I think you learned that from the trailer, too. It just adds that different level of interest keeping in the back of your mind like I said that these things actually happen whatever I see at least unless they've taken some liberties which I'm sure they have at least the basic storyline plot details happened uh, so the first thing you see is this well-off family that's clearly moving to the suburbs or going to visit this house. You know, with it starting this way, you can safely assume that they're going to be moving into this neighborhood. So you're trying to get an idea of what do I know about this neighborhood. 
And when it's a show like this that you know is supposed to be suspenseful, there's some type of mysterious element at the heart of the story that whatever they're looking at, whatever they fall in love with for the first time about this place that they're moving to is probably not all that meets the eye. And it doesn't take very long for that to come true. It's weird to me, this couple that seems to be, you know, they've been married for like 50, at least 15 years. They have two kids. Uh, they've gone through some stuff together. Uh, and I think we'll find out more about it as the show goes on. But they still refer to each other as Mr. Brannick and Mr. Miss Brannick, and they do it throughout the show. And it's just weird to me that, like, you've been married for a long time. If you've not gotten over the fact, like, she even says it, the Naomi Watts plays the mom and the wife in this show. She says, it still feels weird after, you know, to still be calling myself that. But, like, you've been married a long time. That's one of the things that stands out to me when I'm watching a show or a movie. People just, is the dialogue intentional or is it just thrown in there just to have somebody to say? And there's a couple of instances where that happens in this show. Just like, you're having conversations that normal people don't have is it just to fill the gap to fill the space i don't know but anyway it's kind of a weird detail to me they haven't gotten over this idea that they're married they just and maybe there's something to this to get through the rest of the season but they just seem to be like pretending as a family and of course they're acting but there's something maybe that we don't know about this family yet. They pull up to the house, and honestly, the first reaction that I got about the house is that it reminds me of The Sopranos house. Sopranos is one of those shows that I watched. I think a lot of people caught up on things that they missed as far as shows and movies and things like that during the pandemic and during the COVID lockdowns, and The Sopranos was one of those for me. Other than the family referring to themselves as the Brannicks a lot, which I guess is something that people do. I don't know. Just referring constantly to themselves, their last names. I actually didn't think that the family was very super annoying from the start. And sometimes in a show like this, when you're trying to establish how, oh, how fun and perfect the family is, it can be annoying because it's not too realistic. But actually other than the way they were dressed that didn't seem to suit the characters, I didn't think that they were too annoying. So it kind of helps you care about the main characters when you see them being relatable and normal. They don't stay that way. And I'll talk more about that later. But I didn't get too put off by the family from the start. So there they are. They're, they're moving into this ritzy, picturesque neighborhood. You start to notice a lot of random people around the town with staring problems. Just, just very creepy neighbors standing and staring randomly at different points throughout the show. Of course, it's called The Watcher, so you're thinking at any given time, any of these people could be The Watcher. If you've watched the show already. I do have some guesses. I don't want you to tell me if I'm right or not, but if you haven't watched the show, I, of course, taking a step back, I don't think it's too big of a spoiler to go through the plots of these shows. If I'm just a fair warning that when I, whenever I talk about these shows, I'm only talking about the first episodes of anything. I hope I'm not giving away too many plot details that, that you'd want to catch on your own, that you'd want to find out for your own. But uh, just as a place to start, I feel like it's fairly safe to review the first episodes of things without giving spoilers away. But anyway, I do have some guesses about who I think the watcher could be or what this is referring to, but I'll talk more about that later. One of the things you notice also is Aside from obviously this picturesque place that they're moving to is is not everything that it seems. It can't be. When you, when you start a show like that, the only thing that you can do is find out that things are not as perfect as they seem. But other thing you'll notice that there are lots of, this is a good cast, very recognizable. Naomi Watts already mentioned plays. Uh, Nora Brannick, most notably, you might know her from King Kong or The Ring. And then there's Bobby Cannavale, which is one of those guys that like, he's one of those guys that's, hey, that's that's a guy. That's that guy from that thing. I've seen him in something. You might most notably recognize him from either Boardwalk Empire or The Irishman. He looks like a guy that could play 
kind of a mafia character. He looks like that. He looks a little bit like a bruiser, like a rougher kind of guy. So it's kind of weird to see him in a role like this where he's playing the fatherly family man. It was just a little bit different. I wouldn't say that he can't fit the character as much as the way they're having him dress doesn't fit the character, but maybe that's just because it's not what I associate him with and the other things that I've seen him in. You may also notice or recognize him if you're into the Marvel movies. He plays Scott Lang's daughter Cassie's stepfather, if you can kind of track all that. Bobby Cannavale, he plays the father. Another character that you might recognize is Jennifer Coolidge, who plays Karen. Well, Jennifer Coolidge, you may know as Stifler's mom from American Pie, or I think she's the bend and snap lady from Legally Blonde. She's another character that you see in a lot of things. She's very funny, has a really distinct accent. One of the things you have to come to grips with in this show is that she's a very funny person, and you'll normally see her being a comedic person, but I don't think that's her role in this show. Mia Farrow has a role in this show, kind of an older actress, but you might know her from things like the original Great Gatsby or Rosemary's Baby. A couple more characters that stood out to me or that I recognize. Christopher McDonald is definitely one of those, hey, that's a guy from that thing. And if you just search him, Christopher McDonald, you'll know you've seen him in a hundred things, but you can't remember any of them like exactly what they are, but he's in so many things. And another character, Margot Martindale, or that's another actress who plays Mo. We'll talk about more about her in a second. But these are all just kind of character actors that you recognize. They're good actors. They always put in good performances, but you just can't quite put your finger on what you've seen them in. Margot Martindale, I know, is somebody that stood out to me from The Leftovers. If you've watched The Leftovers from HBO, she has a very important kind of central character in that show. So you might recognize her from that. But if you look, if you Google any of these characters, there'll be people that you recognize. All right, so enough about the cast. I get back to kind of the plot of the show, and that's one of the things I recognized was how recognizable the cast was. Immediately, one of the big plot lines that they try to introduce, and they bring it up so many times in the first episode that it's almost weird was this big plot line about the dumbwaiter in the house. Uh, I've, I've been in houses that have dumbwaiters. I know that it's a, kind of an older concept, but just the idea that you use a little elevator on a pulley system in your house to send food or maybe laundry up and down different levels of the house is not that outdated of an idea, but they take a lot of effort and time in this episode to establish, hey, there's a dumbwaiter in this house. In case you haven't caught on, this could mean something. So I assume that's going to keep coming up, at least more than it has already. And they mention it several times, and we, we have to know there's a little elevator kind of system in this house. But it's pretty obvious that it was supposed to come back up, and it does, uh, as soon as they introduce it in the first episode. Another thing we learn about the family that you want to kind of keep track of, I think that's an important thing about first episodes, is you want to get better about watching any, any show you're getting into. You want to get good at picking up the plot lines that you're going to want to follow through and the details that you want to follow through. One of those details is that this family has gone through some financial problems in the past. And as any good decision maker will, when you've been through financial problems in the past, it sounds like they went through some big financial problems with some risky investments. Because they learned so much from these problems they went through, they decide to say, hey, we're going to take all of our financial assets, every investment we have, all of our money, we're going to take literally everything we're worth and we're going to put it into this one house. This couple in the family is the classic house hunters couple like you see in all the memes where my husband sharpens colored pencils for a job and I hunt butterflies on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Our budget is $5 million. We're going to buy this house we can't afford. We're going to talk about it all episode, how we can't afford this house. We just can't possibly afford it. And Naomi Watts' character, 
you know, she's talking about how we don't have any money. We actually, we actually can't afford this house. My husband has an okay salary and she herself is having some kind of success as a ceramics artist, which I can't imagine as respectful as I am of people who can find success in the arts or just chase that passion. I'm not sure how much money she's making on these galleries of making her own ceramics. I, I mean, not enough to afford this house, for sure. And they, they make it a point for us to know we've had financial problems in the past, but we've learned our lesson. So 10 years later, clearly this was a problem in our marriage. We've decided to sink everything we own into this house. Obviously, that's not going to be a good idea or come back to bite them in the butt when the whole town seems to be crazy and they're all obsessed with this house. Well, a little bit too late now, but they had to have it. At the beginning of the show, they seem to kind of rush into this situation, but you do get the sense that the show is trying to move on from this while still showing that the family's investment in the house explains basically why they can't leave it. Early on, we also meet some next door neighbors who spend their time in lawn chairs in the front yard as, you know, any normal people do with binoculars. Uh, just hanging out in the front yard, sipping lemonade in their sandals in their lawn chairs, staring at the neighbors. But they very clearly early on don't want these new neighbors there for some reason. All right. And then we switch back and forth and at, at this point it's kind of hard to tell is this supposed to be more of a funny vibe because the neighbors are nosy or because they're mean um, we've had the jennifer coolidge character who i don't think is a comedic character in this episode but you kind of associate her also the uh the husband of the the, the neighbor couple uh, i've lost his name off the top of my head but you'd recognize him from spin city is what i recognize him from He's in a lot of things, too, and he's also a comedic character. So you're kind of wondering, is this supposed to be more, more quirky or is it supposed to be more suspenseful? Definitely supposed to be more suspenseful, but sometimes that kind of creates some problems when you have some characters that you normally associate with a comedic role. It's at this point in the show that they really start to play up the more suspenseful, maybe a little paranormal, maybe the psychological elements. We have things like piano playing coming from somewhere in the house that somebody references. We're not entirely sure who's playing the piano, if it is a person or if it's some type of supernatural events taking place. There's music playing in the house mysteriously. There's intercom systems that just kind of come to life and crackle. Just here and there. And all of these things could be explained by a person being in the house or maybe something more supernatural. At times, there's a guy in the window that just disappears or doors opening seemingly by themselves. But it could just be the way that it's shot to make us think that it could be something supernatural. But we have reason to believe that there could be people that get in this house without the families knowing it. They could also be playing a part. So you can't rule anything out. We find out that the watcher from the title of the show is somebody who supposedly has a connection as somebody who watches over this house and their family has done so throughout history because they send a letter to the family early on when they've moved in saying, here's who we are. We're going to watch this house. It has a frightening past of some kind, all kind of creepy knowledge about the family, threats about the kids. They keep bringing up the basement. You can't ever have a basement in a show without a show like this, without something wrong with the basement or the attic. And in this house, it might be both. Um, but we're going to find out more about the basement, presumably throughout the show. It's at this point that Kylo Ren starts to narrate the voice of the Watcher, the letters that the Watcher sends. Very Kylo Ren vibes. The narrator, there's like a voice modulator going on over the voice of the, of the Watcher. I think I have a theory about this. I don't think it's actually Kylo Ren. That would be a weird twist, but it, it does sound like him. 
After the family gets this letter from the watcher, this creepy, not really a veiled threat, like a pretty obvious threat, they take the letter to the police chief and the police chief, oh, we're not worried about it. Don't worry about it. Westfield is the safest town in America. Being the first episode, I think we're supposed to catch on that, hmm, that's kind of a, a, a suspicious detail to throw in. You're trying to assure us that Westfield is the safest town in America. No, nobody's ever been hurt in this town. Just some disappearances. Um, well, that's a cause for concern. They kind of just glaze over that detail, but that might be something we need to think about. Another character that we get introduced to is this neighbor, Jasper, that's occasionally a problem. Jasper is the son of Mia Farrow's character. Now, Mia Farrow is playing a lady who is very obsessed with not only the history of the town, but specifically the history of this house and its most important, crucial structural element, the dumbwaiter. The historical society is apparently very obsessed with this dumbwaiter. I can't wait to find out what groundbreaking, earth-shattering revelations we get about the dumbwaiter. I wonder if it has something to do with the basement. But her son, Jasper, seems to have some type of mental disability. Supposedly, any other people who have ever owned the house didn't have a problem with Jasper just wandering in the house and riding up and down the dumbwaiter and everything else. But the police chief, the rest of the town, they're aware of Jasper occasionally ending up places where he's not supposed to be. And for the most part, everybody just seems cool with it. It's also in this conversation that we're kind of off-put, not just by the police chief, just kind of dismissing their concerns. But we, we start to get the hint that the town... Everybody in the town knows a lot more about this family, the Brannicks that have moved into the house than they should. And this is where my theory for later starts to come from. There's this confrontation between uh, Mitch and Maureen, which are the neighbors that we saw earlier sitting out in their lawn chairs at the beginning of the show. I kept thinking that maybe like, maybe they would at least pretend we're going to be friendly to, the, to these new neighbors to see if we can kind of get in their good graces and uh, maybe, you know, subvert them from within. But no, Mitch and Maureen are confrontational from the start and they're really passionate about their arugula for some reason. So the father of the Brannocks comes out and he's like, hey, what are you doing here? Why are you digging up my garden? And Maureen just goes on this tirade about the arugula that she's been gardening for years and the previous owners didn't care anything about it. So they've decided very early on that they're not going to be friends. Maureen or Mo, she says they're going to keep an eye on them, but for very different reasons now. So they're the Early on, we're supposed to think, well, maybe these are the Watchers. But also, Mia Farrow's character is somebody who's told the family already, I'm going to keep an eye on you because they don't respect the history of the house. The police chief himself has said, we're going to keep an eye or we're going to watch over the house for you with patrol cars and things like that. So in a, thing, in a show about watching, there's lots of potential watchers already. Plus the fact that anybody at any given time around the town can be just standing there staring at the house for no apparent reason. Another theme that starts to develop about the show is that this town that they've moved to is all about appearances. Everything looks very ritzy and rich and picturesque and perfect. It's all about country clubs and what car you drive and how you dress. You're just supposed to look like you have everything. So they, they're playing tennis and dining at the country club during the day the town is just about being rich while meanwhile we know that this family while they've bought this house they can't afford they ha they have had financial trouble and they're outsiders to this town that know something about this house that they don't so there are lots of problems about just not being able to fit in you made a, a somewhat greedy choice you just had to have this house now you're an outsider in a town that very much seems committed to its insiders and keeping up the look the appearance probably a bad time and a bad place to buy a house that you can't afford I'm thinking. So those themes of ownership and money and life being about appearances and greed, 
going after what you want, they all seem to be tied into this idea of being watched because you don't belong. You start to see this have a toll on the father character, Mr. Brannick. The mother makes the comment that he didn't always used to be like that, but uh, you start to get the sense that being in this town and being worried about image from the outside, he's starting to worry that maybe his daughter looking like this, behaving this way might send the wrong message. A couple of other noteworthy instances that came up throughout the episode. You know, we talked about the dumb waiter for half the episode, and then the next thing we know, and wouldn't you know it, that Jasper is found playing and hiding in the dumb waiter. Kind of expected this. They kind of, uh, this would have been more suspenseful if they hadn't just, if they hadn't phoned that one in from the beginning of the episode. There's a funny Professor McGonagall joke for Harry Potter fans. You'll appreciate that reference. You consistently get hints that the town just seems to think they have ownership over this house. It's just weird that anyone could get so obsessive over the history of a single house, let alone the whole town and the dumbwaiter and the trees and the garden. Everybody feels like they have some type of possession and ownership over this house, which is a really weird and unfortunate situation as family to be in when they've just sunk everything they own into moving here. They thought this house was just going to be perfect for their family. Turns out that nothing that looks perfect actually is. We also have a, a pretty consistent storyline throughout the episode of the son having a ferret as a pet. We keep seeing the ferret. There was a conversation about why would you buy the kid a ferret? Only for it to be revealed later in the show that somebody has snuck in toward the end of the episode of the house and killed the ferret. So it's no longer just neighbors being nosy or maybe somebody sneaking in that used to be allowed to supposedly but isn't anymore. Like somebody means ill will toward this family now. And we've gotten a second letter from Kylo Ren in the mail about the Watcher paying close attention to them and needing to know who's staying in which in which room of the house and can are you going to fill the house with the blood of the youth and all these things very creepy but overall the show the episode seemed inconsistent as well it was not it's not as consistent and effective in setting up these storylines it's a little bit obvious at times a little bit forced i am interested to know because we do have all these storylines set up you have the teenage daughter and this younger guy who's been hired to set up a security system they've got a little bit of a thing going the neighbor the next door neighbors hate the family they hate the piano playing music that may or may not be coming from the daughter sometimes it is sometimes it's not there's these other neighbors who know and care all about the history of the house and then there's jasper there's a police chief knowing a little too much and not taking the family seriously or at least acting like uh, there's nothing to worry about when well, we know that there is there's the real estate agent karen who may also be hiding something that's the uh jennifer coolidge character she may be hiding a little bit of something about her interest in the house as well. And then we have the wife and the father who want to become part of this image of the town. And you have to wonder, as people who are so obsessed with the insiders of their town, how are they going to take? And then, of course, there's the storyline of The Watcher. So that brings me to my theory. We've had all these different characters. We've heard from The Watcher a couple times who knows way too much about the family. I want to give my predictions here about who might this person be. Who is The Watcher? I have two theories, two guesses right now. They want us to think that it's Mia Farrow, and I don't think that it is. That's too obvious. I also think it's too obvious to be mentioned Maureen next door. They're too obviously aggressive from the start. They may just not like having neighbors. They don't want any kind of disturbance, but I think that's too obvious. I think it's also too obvious that it would be Mia Farrow's character. So I either think that the Watcher is Karen, who wants to keep running people off from that house so she can keep reselling it, or I think it's a combination of all the characters that we've met. 
for whatever reason, there's a group of people involved in the town who don't want anybody to own this house. They don't want people to move in from the outside. There's some type of secret maybe that they're trying to conceal. So they are going, they're collectively trying to run this family off. And those, those are my two guesses. So yes, it's, it's rushed at times. The pacing doesn't always work. It does have some good suspenseful moments. It, it's definitely over the top, but it has a good cast. Pretty interesting mystery. Overall, based on what I've seen so far, I would plan to keep watching The Watcher. My next review is for my first ever Colleen Hoover book. It ends with us. Colleen Hoover is somebody that just all of a sudden has exploded on the scene, to me at least. I've heard so many people just sing her praises and talk about how awesome her books are. And I don't know how I'd gone so long without ever hearing her name with such a big back catalog of books that she's written already. So she seems to be very popular. I think maybe this is a, a TikTok sensation as well. I think she's big on book talk. If you don't know this about me yet, you will find out that I don't really know anything about TikTok, although I kind of hear through students and friends and my wife what's popular on there. But my friends also, or at least some of my friends also make fun of me that I'm just not on TikTok. But uh, apparently she's pretty popular on there. So again, I'm doing It Ends With Us, and I'm actually gonna review the first chapter of It Ends With with us because I feel like that's a really cool place to start to think based on the first chapter that's kind of how we read books right like it's got to grab my attention I need to know there's a reason to keep reading so I'm going to do the first chapter of my first ever Colleen Hoover book it ends with us it does mostly fit the rules of the show it's a first book for me from this author it's the first chapter of the book it's also the first in a series so I think it you know that fits the parameters pretty well I want to say from the top that I have not a single clue what this book is about even after I've read the first chapter. I don't really know what it's about, what to expect. I've just heard so many people swear by Colleen Hoover books, and I thought this would be this would be a good one to start with. Immediately, what grabs me is the writing style. I can see from the beginning, from the first pages to the end of the first chapter, I can appreciate the kind of world-weary narrator and really the voice that I think the author is writing from as well. Kind of an introspective tone, but not in an annoying, sappy way. It's just it's just realistic and kind of tired. And I think world-weary is really that the right word for. I think we all kind of feel that way coming out of the pandemic and just the busyness of life that sometimes you can just be kind of over it at times. That's how I feel. Well, that's the vibe that I'm getting from the narrator from this first chapter. So we meet the narrator, Lily, hanging out on a rooftop patio, just trying to catch a moment to unwind and reflect on her life. And I think we've all been there too at big kind of key moments in our life, pivotal moments where maybe maybe a wedding coming up or maybe some type of reunion or in this case a death in the family where it's just kind of a moment to reflect and that's that's kind of what she's going through something that I think if you've lived if you're an adult you've experienced those moments where it's just kind of a key change in life it's time to just stop and reflect we meet Lily when she's just come from delivering her own father's eulogy we find out that it didn't go as well but we find out a little bit more about that that because of some issues he's, she's had with her father in the past she had a tough time delivering this eulogy apparently we find out in the first chapter I don't think it's too big of a spoiler because it is early on in the book we find out that her father may have been violent Towards her mother at times so we can see why she'd have a hard time saying anything positive or kind about him at his funeral she did try to get out of delivering this eulogy i can see where it'd be hard to deliver a eulogy like that for somebody who you couldn't find respect for so she follows through with it 
it goes about as well as you'd expect, and that's where we find her now. She had just done this maybe a few hours before. So Lily is just trying to catch a moment to herself on this rooftop patio, and she thinks she's going to be alone, but in walks a tall, dark, perfect, handsome stranger who just happens to be a soon-to-be neurosurgeon who also smokes pot. So it's at this point where I'm thinking, oh, are we getting into a little bit of cliche territory? So far, I wanted to give the benefit of the doubt that this Lily character seems pretty off has problems, isn't perfect, and then she comes across this too-good-to-be-true, perfectly handsome guy who seems to have it all put together. We find out a little bit about him. You know, not that I think hanging out on a roof and smoking pot makes you a positive character. He's a neurosurgeon, tall, dark, handsome, perfectly put together. Um, maybe borderline on a little bit of a cliche territory, but I'm going to speak about my theory on that in a second. He does reveal himself to be somebody that, I mean, he admits this, so uh, this is not really a mark towards his character, but he acknowledges that he's somebody that's just only interested in one night stands. He admits he's not relationship material. He's not family material. He's a selfish kind of guy. He just is focusing on his own goals. Now, I do think there's a time in your life when you need to be focused on your goals. Let's, let's get you right first and then, uh, you know, care about yourself first, care about your own goals, and then you can find the time for a relationship. I definitely think that that's all right. He seems to kind of wear it as a badge of honor, though, which is a little bit annoying to me that like, oh, I'm just almost too cool. I'm too good for everybody. I don't need anybody distracting me. Nobody's good enough for that. So I don't know that this is a character that I immediately like, but at the beginning of the book, I don't know if it's somebody that I'm supposed to trust or like. So that'd be interesting to see as we go. I think the narrator might agree with that too, if she was thinking straight. I think a combination of what she's just gone through, kind of the randomness of just finding herself alone on a rooftop with this guy, and then the fact that she is just almost magnetized by how handsome and honest he is and open. Now, whether or not we like the things that he reveals about himself, he is being honest, or at least that's what we think. So I can see where she's just kind of not in shock, but taken back a little bit by this handsome guy that I don't know is just being brutally honest about himself. She's not really thinking clearly and straight. I do want to say, you know, exposition is just really hard to get right, whether it's in a book or a movie, to establish the setting and the characters, but in a way that hasn't just been done a thousand times, or you're not just telling the over-detailed story that just starts to read like a laundry list of things that are going on. You want us to, you want to show us what's happening. You want to show us who these people are and what they're going through. Even, even what they think without just coming out and telling us. And some of the conversation is a little bit clunky, a little bit talky, where we get a little bit of that extra information that maybe could have taken a little bit more time to reveal. But for the most part, I felt that the conversation was pretty authentic. It feels honest, not overly melodramatic. Most of the dialogue between these characters actually does seem real and believable. And I, like I said, that's hard to pull off. Although there are a couple moments where you feel like the author may be trying to be quotable, or maybe the characters, she's trying to write them as though they want to be quotable, but they both have gone through a, at least a pivotal experience in their life recently. Uh, another thing, I think I mentioned it, but one thing I like about the narrator is that she is imperfect and she acknowledges that. It, you don't want to read about a character who can just do everything and has everything that we need for flaws in our characters. She doesn't have it all together and she's worried also that like what other people think and doesn't chase her dreams all the time because of that. That's something that's, you know, as a as a teacher working with students, especially students that are about to graduate high school, that's something that's on my mind a lot and I, I talk to my students about is, you know, what are you going to let be the biggest impact in your life? Are you going to let what other people would have you do shape who you are or are you going to chase those dreams? And this is a character who struggles with that too. She's still young. She's only 23 years old. She has a flawed relationship with her parents. Uh, so while she's a very real and authentic character, 
you have this other character, Ryle, who is a big old walking cliche to me. Given the rest of the authenticity of this chapter, I want to think that he's lying. Maybe. He can't make up the fact that he's good looking. And I don't know. Maybe I'm reading too much into it because he's not trying to pass himself off as somebody that's just this perfect catch. He's honest about the fact that he's not going to make time for other people and that he's too selfish to focus on anybody but himself. Maybe he is being honest about who he is. Or maybe he's just saying what he thinks he needs to say to impress this girl that he just met for other reasons, which he's already admitted. Another positive element of the chapter is that anything that seems cheesy, like I talked about, you know, exposition can be hard to do right and it can be very cheesy, is immediately called out by the characters in the book. And I like that the author leans into that because sometimes life actually can be cheesy. And you can write it that way, but um, I, I like that even though it can borderline on being cringy or off-putting in a book or a movie, the fact that you can acknowledge it, even in you know in a movie or a book, have the characters lean into it like that sounded cheesy or you know at the risk of sounding like a cliche or just like the characters acknowledge their own cheesiness. It's inviting, it's at least acknowledging to the reader like, I know that you noticed this cliche aspect or this cheesiness aspect of it, but that's just, sometimes that's just part of life. So I like that the author is able to acknowledge that. Last thing I want to say is I think the book captures pretty well a conversation between strangers who are both independently just going through things and they just happen to bump into each other. And, they, and I say that to say I like that it captures the honesty that you can often feel in that situation. Maybe that's not something everyone's experienced, but I've personally experienced before you just end up you know, waiting in line somewhere at a restaurant or getting on an elevator somewhere. You just happen to be sitting somewhere, you know, killing time. And you're just all of a sudden talking to somebody, saying things, sharing things that you wouldn't, you didn't expect to share with somebody that day or talk about that day. And I do think that the book captures that well. These two people that don't know each other, they've both been through something pretty difficult recently and they have found somebody they didn't expect to share that with in kind of a moment of vulnerability. And now they're deep into this conversation with somebody that they don't even know. I think that's something that actually occurs and I thought that was interesting I didn't expect to see that obviously in a book that I didn't really know anything about but I, I recognize the, the reality of that conversation so we've met Lily she's characterized as somebody that's imperfect that's had family troubles she's just delivered this kind of failed eulogy at her father's funeral uh, we need we're gonna find out more about that I presume her relationship with her family meanwhile we meet Ryle who seems to have everything going for him, except he doesn't want to make time for relationships. He's only interested in one-night stands, but he's interested in success. And it looks like he's well on his way to getting that. They part ways at the end of the chapter, acting like they're never going to see each other again, but it's the beginning of a book. I have to assume that they will. My personal feel about his character is, while her characterization I like so far, um, the mysteriousness slash too good to be true element of the doctor and the way the characters seem to leave each other for good, even though they obviously haven't at the beginning of the book, all those things make me want to keep reading. Is this guy who he says he is? Is he somebody that we're supposed to like or is he somebody that would manipulate our main character? What else is there to know about Lily? We found out about a past relationship of hers that I feel like wouldn't have been brought up in the first chapter if it wasn't going to come back up. So I wonder if that's going to play a part in the development of this book. Will we see this past relationship or this guy from a past relationship come back into the picture? Will it cause problems between Lily and Ryle? Is there a Lily and Ryle? I don't know. But the authenticity of the narration, the character development, 
the the kind of the unique setting, unique pairing of these characters and the mystery behind who these people are. I definitely want to keep reading the book, and it's it's a good start so far to my first exposure to Colleen Hoover. That's going to do it for this episode of From the Top. I normally try to get three things in, but the reviews ran a little bit long this week, so I'm going to go ahead and cap it at two here. So those were my thoughts on The Watcher, or at least the first episode of The Watcher, and the first chapter of It Ends With Us. If you have any suggestions, again, that you'd like to hear me talk about on the show or you think I should get into, please drop those at podfromthetop at gmail.com. You can also check out our podcast network, Across the Top. We have a Facebook page that you can follow us on, and you'll get updates and notifications anytime we drop a new show or anything like that. You can always leave five-star reviews on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts and go ahead and click those follow buttons as well so you never miss an episode. Thank you all again so much for listening and following along and until next time.